Greetings, Minecrafters. Welcome to the first episode of Minecraft. My name is Dr. Kimberly Quinn, and I teach both cognitive and positive psychology, working with an amazing group of young adults every day. And, as most of you are probably aware, this lovely generation of young adults is also dealing with lots and lots of anxiety and depression, largely due to technology and the feeling of need and the feeling of needing to be connected 24-7 to their devices. Also, in a world that is saturated with media. So let's start off with the big question. What is anxiety? Well, to begin, it's a brain thing. And this means that it's not your fault, any more than having brown eyes or being six feet tall. Anxiety involves a neurotransmitter called serotonin, which is a natural mood enhancer that may look different in somebody who's anxious. It also involves something called the worry circuit, which is part of the limbic system residing in the middle of the brain. Within the worry circuit is the amygdala, two almond-shaped bunches of neurons that are located in the medial temporal lobe. Many people know the amygdala for the famous fight, flight, or freeze response. Of course, the freeze part doesn't typically work out for anyone in the animal kingdom. As it can be difficult to point anything out in the midbrain or the peach pit or avocado pit, a, a nice sort of fun party trick, uh, the next time you're just out discussing the limbic system with your friends, if you'd like to let them know where the amygdala are, simply picture one laser beam going through your right eye all the way to the back of your head, another laser beam through your left eye, then a third laser beam through your ears. Where these laser beams intersect is where the amygdala reside. The worry circuit of the limbic system is very primal and is meant to keep us alive. So from the beginning, when we were running around being chased by saber-toothed tigers, the amygdala would flip the switch on the threat circuit, telling us to hurry up and dive underneath a very comfortable woolly mammoth or behind a tree in order to keep us alive. And now in today, in today's world, in 2020, this, this threat circuit is still alive and well, even if it's, oh no, somebody didn't answer my email or text. Oh no, I wasn't invited to whatever. And somebody with anxiety can very easily be amped up into feeling as if there's some sort of immediate danger. A present day example would be, let's say that we're walking down a dark street at night, where of course we shouldn't be, and the cell phone's out of juice, dead. All of a sudden we hear noises coming from a dumpster. So immediately the amygdala is gonna flip the switch on the threat circuit. Oh no, we might get mugged, stabbed, whatever. And all these thoughts start racing around. Should I stand here like the karate kid and exert some really stellar ninja skills? Or should I bolt right now? All of this is going on. Our, our chest is tight. The heart amps up. Our palms might be sweating. All this going on in us, amped up, amped up, amped up. Then, let's say a few moments later, we see a very obese skunk kind of waddle out from the other side of the dumpster, nowhere near us. Immediately, the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, kind of 
chilling us out, giving us a message of, okay, that's a, just a fat skunk. We're not about to be mugged or stabbed or sexually assaulted or anything. It's just an obese skunk. And though anxiety obviously looks different on everybody, there is different wiring and different environmental circumstances and such. Anxiety itself is still coming from the same source, physiologically speaking. The serotonin, which is a natural mood enhancer, and of course the worry circuit, which we already discussed. And visually, I sort of I picture the Bronx in the heat of the summer, let's say July, when the firefighters used to take the caps off the fire hydrants so the children could get off the hot streets and cool themselves down and or again get out of their hot apartments. And if anyone's ever seen a fire hydrant, you know, or sometimes they clean them, it is really, really powerful, like a geyser. Or if that's a better visual for you, that works as well. Really strong, strong source because we know that anxiety is strong, which is why, you know, it irritates people, certainly me, when I hear people say, oh, it's just anxiety. Just anxiety can, can cripple people. So it's a very, very strong source. And it all comes from the same source. So let's say somebody's could be diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder, phobia, panic disorder, OCD, whatever. It's not uncommon if someone is diagnosed with one of those to exhibit a tendency of another one. So let's say somebody with GAD may show a tendency of, of obsessive compulsive thinking or maybe might you know have a panic moment. This can happen because it's all like this powerful water coming out of the fire hydrant all the same source. It's also important to be mindful that like most things in life, anxiety lands along a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, we may have someone who feels some nervousness sometimes on some days, or at the other end of the spectrum, we have somebody who is maybe diagnosed with general anxiety disorder or, or OCD or whatever, and may also be debilitated by it to the point that they can't get out of the dorm room one day to walk across campus or can't get out of their house to uh, show up at a job interview for their dream job that is obviously so, so important. Throughout this podcast series, I will be sort of uh, providing you with some party tricks to reduce uh, anxiety and what we'll get to shortly about the monkey mind. And I also want to do a disclaimer here. When I use the word or phrase party tricks, this is in no way meant to minimize anything, any anxiety or any other difference in wiring. And it's meant to actually do the opposite to normalize it. So I'll be kind of providing some of those along the way. And these will work for most people along the spectrum of anxiety with the only exception being that sort of extreme end where somebody may sort of temporarily even be debilitated to the point of not being able to leave the house or dorm room like we, like we spoke of. That person may need uh, some professional help for sure, some intervention of some sort, therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and or medication. And these quote-unquote party tricks or strategies are in no way meant to take the place of any kind of professional treatment. And that goes for anybody on the spectrum. And at the same time, uh, the strategies I'll be offering you are very, very practical, easy to, easy to incorporate into your life 
sorts of ways to to reduce these racy, intrusive thoughts. So now we'll move into discussing the phrase, the monkey mind. And I'll begin by reading from an article that I use for my positive psych class, actually. It comes from a book written by Jennifer Shannon called Don't Feed the Monkey Mind. For thousands of years, sages have likened the human mind to a monkey, leaping into thin air from one branch of thought to another, never content, never at rest, worries echo in our head like so much monkey chatter. Powerful emotions have us jumping at anything that promises a little relief, yet somehow relief lies just beyond our reach. Jennifer goes on to say that whether due to genetics or traumatic life events, that millions of us suffer from excess anxiety. But regardless of what variety of intensity our anxiety manifests, there is one thing that is true for all of us. We cannot relax and be at peace unless we feel safe. Okay, so this is where we'll start discussing how to regain control over our minds and therefore our lives. The first step is to realize that the brain is like a toddler and to treat it like one. So my example is one of being in a busy grocery store on a Saturday. And you have a full cart and a two and a half year old who wants M&Ms. It's amazing because even the the best, most well-behaved toddler can just sense that the store is full, the cart is full, and they gotcha, right? So they say, oh, I want M&Ms. Mom, and you say it's mom and dad or dad and dad or whoever. I want M&Ms. I want M&Ms. So mom gently says, no, darling, not now, okay? The toddler's not okay with that answer, so they then amp it up, amp up their voice, maybe throw around a few fists and feet. Mom says clearly, no, 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 right? So it keeps amping up. People are now beginning to look and stare, and we are perceiving them as passing all kinds of judgment. Maybe our palms start to sweat. We might even kind of glaze across the aisles for a priest that could do a quick exorcism so we could get through our shopping. We may start bargaining or making making empty threats about, you'll have to sit in the car, which obviously wouldn't go over well with Child Protective Services. As a child's tantrum amps up, so does a parent's anxiety. Feeling overwhelmed, this parent may cave in to this screaming toddler and her tantrum by giving her the M&Ms, which is, of course, the worst possible thing she could do. Now, hear this disclaimer. This is not to judge parents. My husband and I had five little darlings ourselves and know all too well how challenging it can be to be a good parent. The idea here is from a psychological perspective, basically by caving in to a toddler's tantrum, this is the equivalent of, so I'm an educator, it's the equivalent of the parent standing up in front of a smart board with the child in the in the in the desk, teaching them, writing on the board, please do not listen to me. So, from a psychological perspective, the quickest way to extinguish an unwanted behavior is to completely ignore it. It doesn't mean other things won't work; they just won't work as well or as fast. 
as far as firm talking or consequences, things like that. In relation to our example of the brain is like a toddler, this is also true. And we need to do something called starve the monster, which is a phrase often used with OCD. I think most people are aware of what OCD stands for, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. And right off the bat, I'd like to get rid of the word disorder. In fact, it's my personal opinion that the word disorder should be deleted from the English language and any other translation of this, as disorder is a shame word, which leaves us feeling less than and defective. In fact, I don't allow the word disorder in my classroom, and this is also why I've altered the title of this podcast to Obsessive Compulsive Thinking. In addition to getting rid of the disorder word, as the world certainly doesn't need any more shame, this also includes more people because obsessive compulsive thinking includes the whole spectrum. And as so many of us have experienced obsessive or unwanted thoughts. So the the O, of course, stands for obsessive, like we said, which means the thinking part. The C stands for compulsive, which is the doing part or the action. So I often ask my students, can you have the obsessive or the thinking part without the compulsive or the doing part? Typically, they come up with, yes, we can. We can obsess about the mating rituals of hammerhead sharks off the northern coast of Hawaii. It doesn't mean we're necessarily doing anything about it. And then I'll ask them, Can we have the compulsive part or the doing part without the thinking part? And this is a little tricky. And often the class is sort of mixed. Some will say no right off the bat. Some will say yes. Some, of course, are noncommittal, playing it safe. And the reason some of them say yes is they think about sort of the automatic actions like um, flipping a light switch or checking, rechecking if a curling iron's on or the door is locked. Though this may sound like a trick question to them, the the answer is no. We cannot have the action of the doing without the thinking first, which is very, very important to our discussion today. And they'll kind of look at me perplexed and I'll say, well, here, I'll choose a student. Let's just say Jonathan. And I'll say to the class, okay, let's say we were to remove Jonathan's brain with kindness and anesthesia, right? What would he be doing? Well, the answer is nothing since it's in, you know, a jar of formaldehyde on the shelf. Thoughts come first and feelings come second, even if it's milliseconds. There obviously has to be a brain to do the thinking before there can be action. Even if this is an unconscious thought process, it is still a thought process nonetheless. So this is where we begin our very important discussion on the practice of thought control and learning to become the boss of your brain, which all starts with the neurons. Neurons, just like getting back to our toddler example, neurons need to know what to do, just like a toddler. They need lots of repetition and follow-through of a good parent in order to learn, you know, the proper behavior, how we want them to behave. The brain is also lazy. 
also wired to wander, but very, very lazy. So if you picture three hiking paths, let's say one is covered with really thick brush with thorns and all of that. The second one is, let's say, really tall, tall grass, maybe no thorns, but potential snakes. Personally, I'm not a fan, so that wouldn't be appealing. The third one is, let's say, looks like a putting green, beautiful, just very short grass. And the brain is getting ready to go on a walk with flip-flops or bare feet. Which path would the brain probably choose? Answer, the easy way, the easy path, one that looks like a putting green with very short cut grass. So the brain is used to doing what it's used to doing. So if someone has been sort of allowing self-deprecating thoughts of I'm not, you know, thin enough, smart enough, I don't have enough money, you know, blah, 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 blah. The brain is very, very used to that. That is their putting green shortcut grass path to go. And the brain will continue to walk down that path of self-deprecation until there is some redirection, which once again takes a lot of effort and time. And just like when we redirect a toddler's behavior, usually we get some resistance first. So it's important to realize this about the brain and kind of expect that it's going to get worse before it gets better. And the monkey mind has several different categories of chatter. One of them uh, is the what if category. What if I spent all this time in my major and I end up not liking this field? What if I don't graduate? What if I do graduate and don't get a job? What if I graduate, get a job, and I don't make enough money? What if I disappoint my parents? What if, let's say for the season crew, what if with the current global pandemic, what if I lose my job? What if I have to plow through my retirement savings just to survive? What if I don't have any retirement savings? What if I can't retire? What if my partner loses her or his job? Ba, 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 ba. What if, what if, what if? Then we have the catastrophizers. These, this monkey mind chatter uh, happens to those who plan for every worst case scenario. So they may have some sort of confrontation coming up at work or with a family member, partner, whatever, next Tuesday. And they are going to plan out every possible scenario that could happen. This way they'll be ready, kind of like in a shortstop position, ready for whatever happens. Meanwhile, hours and hours of valuable life minutes are circling the drain never to come back again. And most often, whatever it is we're catastrophizing about doesn't even happen. Here's the thing. The main point here is that there are only two choices in life as far as thought control. And here they are. Either we control our thoughts or they control us. Which one is more pleasant? Hear me also when I say that learning the practice of thought control isn't easy. No one is saying it's easy. It takes commitment and it takes effort, which most things in life that are worthwhile do. And think about it. What happens when we practice something, anything, learning Italian, skiing, robbing banks even, right? Whatever we practice, we inevitably get good at. It isn't different 
with the practicing of thought control. Once we sort of land at this place, I'm actually thinking one of the 12 step one liners, which I absolutely love is one of them is when someone gets sick and tired of being sick and tired, they make a change. And anxiety is exhausting, as many of us know. So when we hit that point that we're just done, we're just done being driven by all these unwanted intrusive thoughts, just derailing our day, maybe even our relationships, we get to a point where we've had it and it's time to make a change. This change is about the hiking path with the shortcut grass, like a putting green, the one that's easiest for the brain. We have to starve the monster of the, of the negative what-if thinking, catastrophizing, and redirect our emotional energy into positive thinking. In order to do this, we actually have to trick the brain, in a sense, because the brain wants our attention like a toddler. Think back to the M&M's example. It's going to just hammer at us, hammer at us, hammer at us until we cave in, right? If we do cave in, it just reinforced the tantrum or the negative thought process, the self-deprecating negative feedback loop. When we allow that over and over, the brain's excited. It's, it's self-reinforcing, which is a big bummer with anxiety. The brain learns that, hey, I found it. I did it. This is what we do. I found how we self-deprecate about, you know, not being smart enough, thin enough, having enough money, whatever. I did it. I found it. It's even stronger the next time. When you first tell the brain no, per se, expect this to happen. Hey, wait, this is our way home from work. This is when we self-deprecate. This is our time. It's just you and me. We have to, you know, run through every fear we've got. So by the time we pull into the driveway, we're completely terrified. That's what we do. It's our time together. Or we're walking across campus alone, maybe plugged into the earphones. This is a great time to worry about not getting a job after graduation, failing out of college, uh, not finding a partner ever. This is our time. This is when we self-deprecate. This is when we amp up our fear to the nth degree. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to me. It's then that we have to derail the brain and say, not today, maybe tomorrow. And you're going to have to really stick with it, especially in the beginning. Like anything we practice, not only do we get better at it, but it also takes less energy at a certain point to maintain the same ability level. Think about it with soccer or skiing or cooking or anything we're talking about. Eventually, we don't have to put in as much energy to maintain the same level of ability or whatever it is we're looking to achieve. So you have to keep at it. Not today, maybe tomorrow. And that may be your main mantra for a while. Now, on average, it takes about 21 days to shift a habit. And contrary to popular belief, habits are not broken or built. They shift. They move. So we have to continue to practice lots of repetition, lots of consistency, not today, maybe tomorrow. So when the brain starts with that, oh, well, this is what, this is what we do. We talk about how, how you're going to lose your job with this, pandem this pandemic and never get it back or you're not going to graduate or might not go back to school or whatever. This is what we do. This is what we do. We say not today, maybe tomorrow. And the brain is eventually going to say, are you sure? Are you sure like tomorrow at 10 o'clock we can have an appointment? We can self-deprecate for at least an hour. Do you promise? And then you say again, not today, maybe tomorrow.
And of course, the next day, when the brain starts up again, you say, not today, maybe tomorrow. After rehearsing this redirection, that nice hiking path with the shortcut grass that looks like a putting green will begin to shift towards more positive thinking and a calmer mind. I'm sure. Trust me. So winding up episode one here, let's do a quick recap. First of all, uh, the disclaimer once again is these strategies will work for most people along the anxiety spectrum. It's that little wedge on the other end where someone may be temporarily, you know, completely derailed and unable to get out of bed to go to a, go to a school or, or work or whatever. Obviously, there may need to be an intervention, counseling, and or medication. And in no way are these strategies meant to take the place of that. So the following is the recap. Anxiety is a brain thing and therefore not your fault. Please hear me when I say this and bring it right into the living room, as I like to say with my own kids, which means your mind. Hear me say this. It's not your fault. Second, anxiety lands on a spectrum, and someone does not necessarily need to be diagnosed to struggle. As they say, the struggle is real. And with anxiety, it happens to be exhausting, right? Third, thoughts come first and feelings come second. Therefore, how we think directly determines how we feel. There will be a lot more on this in the next podcast episode also. Four, thought control takes lots of effort and practice, like most things in life. No one said it's easy. However, it does work. And as mentioned, the average uh, time for a habit to shift when it's been consistently rehearsed or practiced is about 21 days. It'll take less effort. And lastly, becoming the boss of your brain is the key to a free mind and living your best life. Please stay tuned for the next episode of It's Not Me, It's OCT, or My Obsessive Compulsive Thinking, Part 2. This is Kimberly Quinn, signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm -hmm.